Well, good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're looking at verses 20 through 23 this morning. I've entitled today's message, The Folly of Asceticism. I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text. Lord, thank you so much for the good day that you've given to us. Thank you for surrounding us with beauty, Lord, like the beauty of the snowflakes falling from the sky. Truly, Lord, you have lavished us with many gifts. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. And as we study it today, might you um, help us to be receptive to the teachings of your word. Help us to be eager as we try to apply it to our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would use this text to keep us firmly rooted in the pure gospel of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we discussed the Bible's answer to the question, how is a person born again? And we learned that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, there is nothing within us that makes us deserving of the new birth, and there is nothing that we can do to merit the new birth from God. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end, and our only job is to receive God's gift in repentance and faith. But we also noted last week how difficult this doctrine is to maintain because it runs so contrary to fallen human nature. In our pride, we want to believe that we can earn the merits necessary to receive eternal life. Or at the very least, we, we want to think that we can contribute to our salvation in some way so that perhaps God's grace supplies a part of what we need and then we supply the other part such that we become equal partners with God in our salvation. And so our tendency then is to lay aside the biblical doctrine of how to be saved in favor of some form of works righteousness. In other words, some system by which we will merit eternal life through our own good works. One of the more common forms of works righteousness is called asceticism, which basically teaches that salvation is God's reward for your personal self-discipline. In its mildest forms, the ascetic's list of forbidden things can seem almost humorous to us. But understand that for the ascetic, these things are deadly serious. For them, I mean, heaven and hell are in the balance. So, for example, this past week, Joyce Murphy was telling me about the church she grew up in, and I share her story with her permission She said the church in which she was raised forbade all of its members from wearing sleeveless dresses and makeup and jewelry, forbade men from wearing shorts. They also forbade alcohol, playing cards, pool tables, dancing, and a host of other activities. And they forbade these things because they honestly believed that if you touch those things, you may lose your salvation. So Joyce said that there were many times in childhood when she would walk the aisle and 
asked God to save her all over again because she feared that she had broken some of these taboos. Friends, this is works righteousness. It's trying to earn salvation through your own merits. And it's also asceticism, viewing your salvation as a reward for your rigorous personal self-discipline. Of course, there are far more extreme forms of asceticism out there. Like back in the early church, there was this man named Simeon. I've told his story before, but Simeon literally spent his entire adult life living on top of a wooden pole. See, he believed that everything in the world was a threat to his spiritual life. So he literally tried to rise above the world of material things in order to preserve his salvation. So he started on a six-foot pole, but he determined that was not far enough away from the world. So he eventually graduated to a 50-foot pole, and he lived up there for decades He built himself a little platform about three feet by three feet. He put a railing around it so he wouldn't fall down. And he had a ladder up the pole so that once in a while his followers could bring food up. And presumably he could take things down. But he lived that way thinking that by forsaking family, friends, all material comforts, that this would somehow merit him eternal life. There's also a very famous man in India today named Amar Bharati who has spent the last 45 years with his right arm clenched in a fist and raised above his head without once taking it down. You can read about his story all over the internet. Uh, This article comes from historyofyesterday.com. Listen to his story. It says, in the 1970s, Bharati was working at an Indian bank, living a modest life with his wife and three children. But one day he had an epiphany out of nowhere which made him choose to leave his family, job, and friends in order to follow his religious calling. Bharati decided to dedicate the rest of his life to Shiva, a god in Hinduism. At first, he still felt the temptation to do things that were not permitted him as a monk. And that is why he needed to do something more drastic to consolidate his religious beliefs. That is why in 1973, he chose to raise his hand and hold it up for the rest of his life. At first, the pain in his hand was terrible, the article says, but the pain never outweighed his dedication. After the first two years, he started losing any sort of sense in his hand, and with that also, the pain started to go away. This man is still holding his hand high, and he is not planning to put it down anytime soon. In fact, even if he was to put his hand down, his muscles are so severely atrophied that lowering his hand would cause permanent nerve damage in his arm. Therefore, he's better off just keeping his hand up for the rest of his life, not only due to health reasons, but also for spiritual reasons. This is what asceticism looks like in its mild and extreme forms. But it all comes down to the same thing. It is is the attempt to earn one's salvation through personal self-discipline. The idea is that if we will just deny ourselves enough physical comforts, that God will take favorable notice of us 
and give us spiritual life. But friends, is this what God really wants from us? Does God really want us to forsake sleeveless dresses and makeup, to spend the rest of our lives living on top of 50-foot poles, or to live with our arms raised above our heads until we have lost all feeling in our hands and our arm has been reduced to skin over bone? Is that what God requires of us to receive eternal life? Are these God's conditions for going to heaven? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question for us here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. In today's text, we learn that asceticism was a big part of the religion of the false teachers who had infiltrated the church of Colossae. You can see it in verse 21. Okay, here was kind of their motto. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then you see another description in verse 23. They promoted asceticism and severity to the body. But Paul explains that this approach to one's life is extremely misguided. And Paul gives us four reasons for why this is misguided, especially for a Christian. Here's number one. Asceticism is inconsistent with our new lives in Christ. Asceticism is inconsistent with our new lives in Christ. Listen to what Paul says here in verses 20 and 21. He writes, If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, then why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? So, friends, at the core of the Christian gospel is the teaching that Christ died for us. And when we receive Christ in repentance and faith, we die to the world. That means we make a clean break with the world's thought patterns and the the ways of life that flowed from those old thought patterns. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 6.14, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There Paul is saying that the, the moment he became a disciple of Christ, the whole world just cut him off. Remember, Paul had been a Pharisee. He was an elite religious leader. He was rich. He was powerful. He was respected. But the moment he embraced Christ, the world died to him. Cut him off. Paul says it was mutual. He says he also was crucified to the world. He made a clean break with the old thought patterns and ways of living that characterized the world without Christ. This is what happens when we become Christians. And on the one side, that means that we make a clean break with the idea that life is all about self-indulgence. That's the worldview of modern secularists. That, that the main point of life is just to accumulate all of the comforts and pleasures for your body that you can do, that you can secure. We've made a break with that idea. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.11. It speaks to this. Paul writes, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he adds this, 
And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in the city of Corinth, there were, there were these people whose, whose lives had been totally devoted to self-indulgence. Whether it was sexual or financial or whatever it was, their whole life was devoted to that. But then they came to faith in Christ and they made a break with that way of living. Paul says they came to Christ in faith and then they were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified in the sight of God. You see, we die to the world as the world dies to us. But friends, making a clean break with the world also means that we break with the idea that salvation is a reward for self-discipline, which is the worldview of most modern religious people. Virtually every religion in the world, in fact, as far as I can tell, every religion except the true religion of Christ, teaches this, that the means of attaining spiritual life is by a a rigorous program of self-denial. So the one side says, you know, the point of life is to indulge yourself in every way possible. But most religions say, no, the, the way to life is to reject everything material, to engage in rigorous self-deprivation, and, and that by keeping this list of things to do and by keeping away from the list of taboos, there you will find eternal life. You know, on the surface, both the works righteousness person and the self-indulgent person look very different. They look very different on the outside. But you know, if you look beneath the surface, you find that they are exactly the same. You see, the root of both of these lifestyles is sinful pride. The self-indulgent person says, I will not acknowledge God's kingship over me. I will not accept His will for my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. And what I want to do is live for me every moment of the day from now until I die. That's pride. But then there's the works righteousness person. They reject the God of heaven too. And they look at the provision that God has made for our salvation through Christ and they say, no, I don't want that. I believe that I can make my own way. And I believe that my own way is better than his. I can come up with my own list of things to do and I can come up with another list of taboos to avoid. And by keeping rigorously to my personal list, I can attain heaven without the provision that God has made for me. See, they're both ultimately rooted in pride. Very different manifestations, but the same heart problem. But standing between them is the gospel of Christ, which frees us from a life of self-indulgence and also from a life of rigorous self-deprivation. It does this by offering us a full atonement for our sins through Christ and then also giving to us a new heart disposition which desires to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Embracing the true gospel of Christ causes us to to enjoy life but to do so in God-glorifying ways. And this is what makes the gospel unique. 
So for a Christian then to fall into a life of self-indulgence or for a Christian to go on the other side and, and fall into a life of asceticism, both are inconsistent with what it is to be a Christian. It, it's inconsistent with this new freedom that we have, have obtained in Christ. The, the freedom not to be a slave of my passions, but also not to be a slave of these of these silly lists of rules of do's and don'ts. This is the first reason why asceticism is inconsistent with or is a misguided approach to the Christian life. But then we notice a a second reason why asceticism is misguided. We find this in the first part of verse 22. Uh, If you have an ESV Bible, you'll notice that, that the first part of that verse is in parentheses. Uh, That's because the statement within the parentheses is grammatically distinct from what Paul has just said. And it's almost like an aside to what he has said. But it's so important to Paul, he can't leave it out. And, And what is this important additional point that he wants us to see? Well, look what he writes. I'll go back to verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Okay, there, there's the motto of the ascetic. And then in parentheses, referring to things that all perish as they are used. Now, what does that mean? Well, what Paul is saying here is that in addition to the ascetic lifestyle being inconsistent with our new lives in Christ, it's also misguided because it gets its priorities all messed up. You see, the ascetic is is preoccupied with the trivial to the neglect of the weighty. Notice here, false teachers in Colossae were making a really big deal about the kinds of foods that people eat. You saw that up in verse 16. You see it again here in verse 21. They're really concerned about food. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Probably referring to to meat, to to different drinks and things. They They are raising these things to the level of eternal importance. What Paul is saying is that these things are food and drink. These things are just things that perish. In fact... Food and drink perish the moment they're consumed. These things are nothing. And in preoccupying themselves with things like food and drink, the false teachers in Colossae were neglecting the things that really do affect our spiritual life, like what's going on inside of our hearts, the disposition of the heart. You know, Jesus made the same point to the Pharisees decades earlier. You guys remember the Pharisees? Okay, the, these religious leaders, extremely self-disciplined. They had all kinds of, of rules and to-dos and taboos on top of the, the Hebrew Scriptures that they vigorously kept. But look what Jesus said to them. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. So Jesus looked at the the Pharisees of his day, and he said, look at you guys. You spend all of this 
energy trying to make sure, okay, exactly 10% of the mint and the dill and the cumin is being given off to the temple. But they're not giving any attention to actually becoming a just human being or a merciful human being or a faithful human being. Jesus says you're focusing on the trivial things and you're completely neglecting the things that are really important in life. Jesus added this in Mark chapter 7. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. See, Do you really think it's a matter of eternal importance whether you eat a steak or a salad? These are just perishing things. They go into the body and then they're gone. They're nothing. What does matter is what's happening in the heart. What are my my thoughts? What are my feelings? What do I love? What, What are my values? These are the things that affect one's spiritual destiny. You see, the problem with asceticism is that it takes things that don't really matter for your spiritual life and it raises them to the level of eternal significance. And then because you're so preoccupied with the trivial things, you end up neglecting the really significant things. You spend all your time thinking about what you should and shouldn't handle and taste and touch. So you have no no time left to actually pursue the reformation of your heart. This is the second thing wrong with asceticism. Now we turn to a third thing. We find this in the second part of verse 22. Not only is it inconsistent with the Christian life, not only does it get its priorities all mixed up, but number three, there is simply no divine warrant for the ascetic's lifestyle. Look at the second part of verse 22. It says, according to human precepts, and teachings. So these rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, Paul's saying, they didn't come from God. Okay, God didn't tell you that eating salad was a more spiritual activity than eating steak, or that you were threatening your spiritual life if you had wine with your dinner instead of water. These things are not of God. What are they from them? Well, they are of human traditions. They are human rules. Listen to Jesus' rebuke, excuse me, uh, God's rebuke of the children of Israel in Isaiah 29, 13. He said, This people draws near to me with their mouths and honors me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. That's the problem that we see here as well. You see, what the ascetic does is to lay aside the teachings of God's word and the the priorities that God's word uh, has in favor of a self-made religion consisting of all kinds of rules and taboos. And somehow the ascetic thinks that this way of living will draw him closer to God than the way that God has actually laid out himself in his word. There's no divine warrant for the ascetic's life. But then if all of this wasn't enough, there is a fourth reason why asceticism 
is misguided. Verse 23, it never achieves its aims. So for all of the effort expended, it doesn't even work. Look what it says here. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But, he says, in reality, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So a self-made workspace religion might have a superficial appearance of wisdom to it, but because that way of living has no divine warrant, it also has no divine power behind it. Friends, do you really think that refusing to eat meat or refusing to wear a sleeveless dress or men refusing to wear shorts or living on top of a 50-foot pole or lifting your arm above your head until it is skin and bone, do you really think these things are going to give you victory over indwelling sin? Do you really think that somehow these practices will draw you closer to the God of heaven? Not a chance. Not a chance. These things don't work. They certainly didn't work for the Pharisees. Listen to what Jesus said to them again in the book of Matthew. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The Pharisees were ascetics. They, they rigorously kept to their works righteousness way of doing religion, and they had all of these things they wouldn't handle or taste or touch. And to to the, the world around them, they just look like paragons of righteousness. But inside... Jesus said they they were full of dead men's bones. They were like tombs washed on the outside, filthy on the inside. And you know, the truth of what Jesus said to them is in their betrayal of Christ and in their having him crucified. Jesus was the man without sin, had done nothing wrong. He certainly had not wronged the Pharisees in any way. But they hated him so much. I mean, having the Son of God in their midst was so intolerable to them that they connived to get him crucified. What more proof do you need that all of those external things that they were doing were of no use in changing the condition of their hearts? For all of their their superficial righteousness, these men were still filled with with pride and jealousy and hatred toward the Son of God. So in summary, friends, denying denying comforts to your body in order to save your soul is a terribly misguided approach to religion. It's incompatible with our new lives in Christ. It neglects the weighty in favor of the trivial. It has no divine warrant, and it does not even achieve its aims. So as we 
prepare to draw to a close now, can we ask a follow-up question? That being, so what is the alternative to asceticism? Well, friends, here is the alternative according to Scripture. If you long for communion with God, you can have it. But you must come to God on His terms. And what the Scriptures teach us is that God has done everything necessary for you to have spiritual life. He's done it all in His grace. He sent His own Son into the world, giving Him human flesh. He allowed His Son to live among us. He, his Son lived a life of perfect righteousness, unlike any of us. And then His Son went to a cross and made a full atonement for our sins. His Son then rose from the grave on the third day, proving His victory over sin and death. And He extends His invitation to all. Jesus says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And He says, Take My yoke upon you, for it is easy. This is the true path to spiritual life, just trusting in the provision that God has made for you through Christ, having faith in the Son of God and in His person and His work, repenting of that old life, right? dying to those old ways of, of thinking and living, and just trusting Christ. Do this and you will be saved. And friend, as you pursue your spiritual growth as a believer... Do that in the way that God has prescribed too. So the scripture provides us with a pathway towards spiritual growth. Sometimes we call these the means of grace. And they're very simple. They involve things like regular scripture intake, a life devoted to prayer, active involvement in a local church, Commit to these things, and over the long term, there will be an, an internal renewal take place within you. And also realize, friends, that the Scriptures have enough moral guidelines for us to keep us occupied without needing to add a whole bunch of our own rules. You know what's interesting about the moral imperatives of Scripture is they're a lot harder to keep than the ones we come up with. It's easy to avoid certain types of clothing or certain types of food. It's hard to keep the commandments of God because they go down right to the heart. Listen to this one. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or how about this command from God? In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Or how about this one? Each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, for God has called us to impurity. Not, God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Friends, if we will come to God through repentance and faith in Christ, and then if we will follow God's plan for our spiritual growth, taking in His Scriptures, giving ourselves to prayer, involving ourselves in the life of the church, and trying to, to 
uh, embrace and, and adopt the, the clear moral commands of God's word, we will be occupied for the rest of our lives and we will grow from the inside out. Well, then what about those so-called gray areas of life? What about those things like what foods you eat, what things you drink, what kinds of clothing you wear, what, what jewelry you put on, uh, how you spend your, your recreational time? Okay, what about those types of, of things? Well, friends, when it comes to those matters, we simply need to make our decisions based on Scripture-informed wisdom and by listening to our God-given conscience. There is a lot of moral ambiguity in our day-to-day decision-making. Every day we've got to make these judgment calls in in these so-called gray areas. Well, just take the wisdom of Scripture that you know and apply it to that situation. What is best for me in this case? Listen to your conscience. Is your conscience clear or are you violating your conscience in doing something? Yes, adopt your personal principles and standards, but then don't raise your conclusions to the level of eternal importance and and force all others to submit to them with you. We need to give others some space to arrive at different conclusions in the gray areas. Now, Jeff Manier tells a funny story along these lines. Jeff is one of our, our church-supported missionaries. He tells the story of a preacher who is invited to speak at a new church. And so he, he began to make his way to the church. Well, the leaders of this church decided to come out to the parking lot to greet the new pastor when he, when he arrived. As the pastor disembarked from the bus and and he looked at at the people waiting for him in the parking lot, this pastor was horrified to find that some of the leaders of this church were smoking cigarettes in the church parking lot. He was scandalized. Well, then the leaders of the church looked at the pastor and they were horrified that a minister of the gospel had chosen public transportation on the Sabbath. They, too, were scandalized. My friends, it's okay to have strong opinions about things. It's also important to extend each other a little bit of grace and also to remember that spiritual growth is a long, slow process and people are at different points in the journey and they may have come to different conclusions on some things. It's important for us to remember to extend grace, as God extends grace to us every day. Friends, if we will keep these principles in mind, we will do well in our Christian lives. Let's pray together now. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Christ, which frees us from slavery to our passions, but also from from slavery to a a self-concocted list of rules and taboos. It it frees us from from a life that is given to trivial things instead of to weighty things. It's a life that allows us to to live before you with wisdom and with a, a clear conscience. Lord, I pray that you would help us um, as we engage in in this this 
triage, what matters are of eternal consequence, what matters are important but not of eternal consequence, what matters should we just show grace to each other and allow us to disagree among ourselves. Lord, it's challenging. It takes wisdom. But I pray that you would help us to to simply focus on your Son, focus on the Gospel, and Lord, we trust that as we do so, you will lead us in the right way for the rest of the decisions that we need to make. Help us, Lord, to be a a gospel-shaped people. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.